Objects, said philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, should not touch because they are not alive. You use them, put them back in place, you live among them, they are useful, nothing more. But they touch me, it's unbearable. I'm afraid of being in contact with them as though they were living beasts. After using my mum's old Tupperware containers as grief therapy after she passed away a few years ago, I became fascinated at how and why such a simple piece of plastic could hold so much emotion for me. How could these objects touch me so deeply? So I became overtaken with wonder at how my use of objects owned, used and cherished by her could be so powerful and therapeutic. Why do we invest so much in things? How could a basic, empty plastic container, a mere tool, make us so happy? And surely, in a world crowded with waste, disposability, materialism and hyper-consumerism, investing meaning in objects, in stuff, is part of the problem. And Tupperware, I mean, it's just an empty plastic container bound for landfill, right? Or is it a container of fascinating intergenerational stories? Well, I'm on the road to discovering the answers to these questions, plus a whole world of stories about us. Women, men, people, children, community, food, family, friendship, empowerment, and more. So Sartre, it seems, was onto something. Objects just aren't objects. My name is Megan Spencer, and this is Auspicious Plastic, a podcast. So Darren, welcome to Auspicious Plastic. Uh, thank you. Uh, Darren Hutchison is a friend I made when I was living in central Victoria in regional Australia. A lifelong Tupperware lover and a dealer too back in the 1980s. Nowadays, he's also a talented Lego designer who makes painstakingly beautiful and poetic sculptures out of the tiny plastic bricks. Darren's a passionate collector, a thinker and a great storyteller with a beautiful mind. And he spent a good deal of time contemplating his relationship to both forms of plastic as you'll hear in this moving and funny kitchen table conversation, which took place, of course, alongside a cupboard full of well-used, well-loved, colour-coded plastic canisters. So let's cut to the chase. Let's cut to number one. Um, your, will I say, am I being presumptuous if I say your love affair with Tupperware? Oh, definitely. Um, and it would start right back as a small child. Um, and I did a bit of research because I kept thinking, my mum had Tupperware in the cupboard and I know that I used to play with it and I'm trying to was trying to work out how old I might have mm. been um, but it appears as though Tupperware came to Australia in about 1961 I was born in 65 so there's a good chance she had that these things that I'm remembering mm. were in fact Tupperware um, tell me Darren what do you remember first playing with um, the bowls uh, they, they were special there was a specialness about them. They were watertight seals. They were they were proper. And my mother also valued them highly. We didn't have a lot of money. And so anything that you bought that was good quality, you had to look after and keep. I have to say to you, this is an ongoing theme that is provides me with a lot of fascination and interest. There's been about four people I've spoken to about Tupperware so far for Auspicious Plastic. And every single time the kind of status element has come up and the quality element. And I don't mean status in a bad way. I mean, you had to count your pennies back mm. in the day when in the 60s. And if you owned Tupperware, it meant you saved up for it. Or it could mean that you were a bit upwardly mobile. You might have been going up in the world and earning a bit more money in your household. 
Yeah, and the having good quality or things that last um, also was because we didn't have a lot of money where there was and there wasn't a lot of cheap stuff around but we had uh you know that that sense of good value uh we we tried to um you know maximize every we always ate well so food was a big part of uh, being in my family back in south australia was you know always plenty of food on the table we did our own preserves we had apricot trees so they all got into turned into jam or um, preserved in uh, fowler's jars uh, that sort of thing mm. uh, we preserved tomatoes zucchinis all sorts of stuff dad would grow things in the backyard and we'd preserve them we'd spend a weekend with produce all over the table and we'd all do our job mum got a kenwood chef because dad had got a bargain somewhere think he'd been to the dogs because we were not far from the dog racing track and he came back with a Kenwood chef and all the attachments and I'm sure it must have fallen off the back of a truck if I didn't know better and it became this amazing workhorse for processing all of this produce to to get it into to can you know jars to be able to store it away so that connection of those strong memories are really strong is the salt and pepper shaker on the strange little four-legged stand. The, the Tupperware? Tupperware ones. And the space-age look of it, because I was very much into Lost in Space, which was fairly new at the time. And it was space-age looking, even though it, it had these strange little seals on the top, which were just, you know, open and close all the time. So Darren, let's fast forward from when you were like four or five years old playing with your Tupperware salt and pepper shakers at your family home to when you started to collect and or sell Tupperware. Mm. So I, uh, uh, I left home in my early 20s and um, set up house uh, with uh, my partner Greg. We uh, decided we were, you know, we rebuilt the kitchen and we wanted to get things all nice in there and it's like I've had in my head Tupperware, we need to get Tupperware. And he also had a strong sense of good investment and good quality. So we contacted uh, a local Tupperware dealer to see about being able to get some and she said if the best way to get Tupperware if you're starting from scratch is to become a, a distributor. Mm-hmm. Sounded like a great idea. So... I became a male Tupperware distributor. What, what, what year are we talking? Uh, 1988. What, was it rare back then? Uh, there, was, there was one other guy that I knew of. Certainly there were several couples. And that was part of why I thought I might have been able to find a niche market here because um, even at that stage, you know, there were guys living in the houses by themselves and it's like, what do you get? So knowing how to use the stuff, I really enjoyed telling people, instructing people on the correct use and how they can use it and giving them ideas and creating that visual picture of an empty piece of Tupperware with full of strawberries, you know, and... <laughs> And how, if you treat them right, give them a rinse, hull them, pop them into your Tupperware container in the fridge with the lid underneath, and about 15 or 20 minutes later, you go back, put the lid on top, the moisture won't condensate on the top of the lid, and they'll last for ages compared to just leaving them in the container. They come in and chucking them in the fridge. All about temperatures, you know, I'm into thermodynamics. and so all you sorts. got really deeply into the technicalities of all of this. Absolutely. I just loved that whole concept uh, of being able to, you know, help people as well as, um, you know, 
say, create yeah. this amazing picture in their head of how they're going to enjoy their Tupperware. I did reach a stage where I was able to go to one of the rallies and get a special pin for the amount of Tupperware I'd sold during, uh, it was August 88, because it was the 8th of the 8th 88. And there were $8.88 specials for the 8th of the 8th 88. Um, in fact, in a moment, I shall go to the cupboard and show you one of the pieces I still have. I don't have a lot from that era, um, because when Greg and I split up, you wouldn't guess I didn't get to keep the Tupperware. So you lost... The Tupperware, what, what do we call it, the chattel in the divorce. So is it difficult for you to talk about Tupperware then, given that that memory is associated with it? Uh, that, that whole situation, I mean, it was a five-year relationship, mm -hmm. so it was a fairly significant investment of time and effort um, as well in, in many respects. So it, was, it is difficult, mm -hmm. but I, 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 there were plenty of good things that happened too, and I always focus, try and focus on the good things. That's yeah. how you survive. So, but Tupperware is, uh, you know, it's it's matted all around this kitchen. Okay, um, so it's not like it's a a bad association for no. us to be talking about because, I, and I asked yeah. you this because you would have heard through the podcast too that um, I've got a very emotional attachment to my mother's Tupperware. You did when we when we were talking about doing this interview. You said to me, "It's amazing how." deep emotional feelings can come up around objects. Absolutely. Um, there, there's a few things that I've got in, in my life that have that deep connection um, and that I feel very, you know, sort of like if the place is burning down, these are the things I'm grabbing. In a sense, the Tupperware for me has always been the sort of a strong grounding thing, that, that sense of, uh, you know, a lifetime guarantee. It's not something you offer lightly on anything. And I've sort of got a, a strong feel that when people like, um, you know, Mr. Tupper set this up, he wanted to make something that worked in and this lasted. and lasted. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And lasted. Mm. And so his intent in the first place was not to create some disposable throwaway item, but something that was lo longevity and, and, and would be useful and, and improve people's lives. Those those morals those those things are things that I hold dear um I like to reuse recycle repurpose you know many things this kitchen is built out of pallets because when I moved in here there was a couple of cupboards that were terrible so I've used pallets to build the kitchen I like to recycle stuff all the time I built a Dalek from Doctor Who uh, which I made out of rubbish which mainly plastic advertising signs from the inside of a tram so, and I take it to the local comic fair and um, get a lot of looks on that too. Um, yeah, really strong emotional connection to objects um, that I think are important. Greg uh, and that relationship taught me a lot. He went through and tore up every one of my photographs and I was estranged from my family because of my sexuality and their religion. So there was, these were the only things I had that connected me to them. Uh, he he must have been feeling hurt um, in, in his own fashion and uh, wanted to somehow make me feel hurt as well. Um, and only just this week I've discovered this wonderful program on Photoshop where I can put some of these fragments of photos into and rejoin them back up. Does, does that make you feel good? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, there's a 
couple of photographs, like there's one of me at about three or four years of age with in, being held in the arms by somebody who was very special in my life, um, who, when the estrangement with the religion and my family, I lost them out of my life. And the, I've only got one photo of her. And so this week I pulled it out and I reassembled it, yeah. My name's Megan Spencer and you're listening to Auspicious Plastic, a podcast about precious objects and how they can bring meaning to our lives. Today, my guest is Darren Hutchison. He's a Lego designer, upcycler and former Tupperware demonstrator who uses his predilection for plastic to help change things for the better. Do you mind if I just go back to the late 80s when you were still together and uh, you were a distributor for Tupperware and you have mentioned that you're a, a gay man and an out gay person? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, the Tupperware was uh, there was absolutely no hassle whatsoever. We were very accepted um, as a couple. Um, Greg would come along to the meetings with me. We, he helped me again, like with the paperwork, and we, you know, he enjoyed that side of it. Um, we went along to the meetings. You know, we thought a whole lot of them were a bit high on the smell of plastic. It certainly seemed a bit that way. Um, we did a fundraiser for the um, Bobby Goldsmith Foundation at the Gay Counselling Centre in Adelaide um, as a in Tupperware, and it's like you know, I've got all these. Um, strange people from all different walks of life coming in and buying plastic bowls and we just put the profits, instead of putting it in my pocket, the profits went into the to the foundation. Wow. Um, so this was a bit of a community unifier by the sounds of things. In a way, in a way yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then the, the regular parties I was holding were primarily neighbours and I didn't have a, a lot of close friends except that... Or, or I did, but they were all fairly young gay men, and of course they weren't thinking about they'd spend their money on on alcohol at the nightclubs more than they would, you know, expensive plastic bowls. But there were a few that were setting up their house and wanted things nice. I, I wasn't really in the in the double income, no kids sort of area more. As I, say, I didn't make a fortune out of it, but I certainly filled our cupboards full of Tupperware with the. The, yep. <laughs> the modular mates had had only recently been released at that stage and they were a fantastic pantry um, solution. The same ones that are in my... The, the same design is in my cupboards now. Can we have exactly. a look? Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is my pantry, which is made in the old fireplace um, where there used to be a one-fire stove. And did did and you I'm, make these doors? Yeah, yeah, out of rubbish. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so inside there, you can see I've got... That's um, a lot of Tupperware. Uh, wow. So these are the modular mates. I've wow. I've got the blue seals. And you can see that even over time that the colours change slightly. So Darren's just opened his pantry. And what I can see, this is actually the most magnificent Tupperware pantry I've seen so far. Everything matches and it's like transparent um, vessels with beautiful sort of almost like dark sky blue lids and you can see everything and everything is beautifully displayed and and modular. <laughs> well, I love the way they stack and they've done it in this fashion of like um, each of the each of the containers has a number on the bottom. So um, this one has a number two on it. Um, it not only says that it's got its recycle number and it's mm. also got how many millilitres it holds. So now a two is double a number one and then there's three. Oh, and the other thing, I used to remember playing with my mum's version of this. They reissued them and that's the scoop, which lives in the sugar so you can put it into a bowl on the cupboard. But my mum had one of these. It was called Natural, the Tupperware plastic at the time. and It was a little bit softer than this is. This is a little, new Natural is a bit firmer. 
but I just love the fact that that can sit in there and the seal can still go on and I've got the sugar kept away from the ants. Can I ask you, have you got any other old Tupperware in your cupboards that you could show well, me? I've got the 8th um, of the 8th 88 yes. piece, uh, which is down here. This is the, so it doesn't seem like much, but it's a, a, a small, um, it was, I think they were called a breakfast bowl. And this came in a set of four. The four were in different colours. There was a grey, a green, a pink and a blue. But the connection for me, although this is uh, from from that 8th of the 8th, 88th period, is that this is the same shape, the same pressing when I was a little boy is what I used to have my breakfast in. So, how, so do you feel when you, how do you feel when you pick this out? Because you've just gone to the bottom of the cupboard and hauled this out. So how do yeah. you feel when you use it in your daily life? Um, well, I, I, I get a sense of there's a there's a bit of you know that, that connection. I like things that last, and the fact that I've had this for all those years and it still survives and it's in. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's in reasonable condition considering it's done a lot of breakfasts, <laughs> and it's you know saved a lot of leftovers and all that sort of mm. stuff. Um, there's a little bit of uh, a sigh that I don't have all of them. And that I don't have some of the other pieces that I really loved. Um, uh, we had, had a couple of pieces of Ultra 21, which was the... What's, when, what's that? You really don't know. I don't. <gasps> In the 80s, uh, Tupperware um, tried some uh, microwavable plastics and Ultra 21 <laughs> was the thing. And it was hideously expensive and just a container that you could put things in and microwave and it was just it was amazing and I managed to you know do the right amount of sales to get myself a piece of ultra 21 and of course Greg kept that so you lost that in the custody battle the but custody you got battle. this in the custody but I got this I got yeah. this yeah. I, I probably would have got a few a few pieces mm. um but this is one that's managed to survive the journey that's brought me to here. To here, to where yeah. you are right now. <laughs> where I am right now. <laughs> Have you got any other bits and pieces? Oh, there's tons of, mm. there's tons of, uh, um, there's tons of things in here. The measuring cups set, um, which is, is just amazing. Um, the, uh, this is the, the mixing bowl. That's a ripper. Look how deep and, it is. Well, uh, it reminds me of my mum's mixing bowl, which, um, it was it was the clear one, but a, a very distinct shape to it. But it comes with two separate lids, um, one that's got a hole in the middle, so that you can, when you're mixing, you can put the um, the, the stick blender in, or and it's got a there's a seal that goes in it, which also matches the juice the, the, the jug seal. And then there's another container that fits the same. You know the, the modulus way this works that this seal fits that it's the same size and you can use these things to me that's just brilliant you know this and, is... and the overhanging lip too yeah because that's so when you pour things out uh you've got something that the underhanging lip mm. is so you've got something to hang on to and the overhanging one is so that uh you've got something to to pour out through and on top of that fits uh, a mandolin type device uh, which you can um which is just in one of these drawers as soon as he dives into here, yeah, here we go. This is the the device that fits on top of here, so that we can do your grating, and it, and it fits in there, uh, and so you can just hold on to that and fit in any one of these uh, these different slices. Will go in there, and you've got the thing. And, and you, you, can... you use all these things, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. We we slice and dice and chop and um, oops, as I drop it all on the floor. 
Because what we haven't also disclosed is that you're a vegan. So, I mean, food's important to everybody and you clearly had a long-standing respect and love for food. But when you're a vegan, you have to be very resourceful and inventive, right? Because you've got to find your protein sources, etc., etc., from different types of food and be come up with different options, right? I just used to imagine vegans were people that only ate salad and lettuce and, you know, you see these sort of weak, pale people walking down the street. And I can only tell you is I've put on more weight since I've been a vegan because I have to think about things, so therefore I eat far more interesting food now than I ever did before. I always felt that cooking was science in the kitchen. You know, it's chemistry, it's, it's, it's heat... You know, when you want to make something and you've got to have the right temperature, you've got to have the right conditions. So many things work in a kitchen if you use your scientific principles. Um, so there's this, like I say, thermodynamics, big on thermodynamics. <laughs> All right. Well, look, let's, shall we now maybe move on to the other part of yeah. your auspicious plastic experience, shall we call it? I've always enjoyed construction toys. Um, I've always been, as I said, we didn't have a lot of money, so there was never uh, a large collection of, you know, toy cars or toy boats or whatever. There was a few things, usually hand-me-downs or the like. I had a handful of Lego pieces, but always Lego had this fascination for me because I could, could make anything I could imagine out of these bricks. When I look at it now, I think they were very digital in the sense of, you know, pixelated digital things, but um, everything's made of pieces, smaller pieces. I knew that from understanding atoms and, you know, that everything's made of little pieces. So the more little pieces you could bring together, you could make all sorts. So I love the Thunderbirds, so I used to make a Thunderbird 2 out of Lego. I used to love Star Trek, so I would make the Enterprise out of Lego. I didn't have very much, but the little bit I had, I really used. Well, they say there's billions of combinations with just six bricks. Um, well, I reckon I must have gone through most of them. So plastics really played a major role in your life, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Metal just didn't... My father's a sheet metal tradesman, which is really... You know, he made things at home. You know, he had a wooden boat and he repaired it and he would make pieces for it and he would make rainwater tanks for people and repair um, uh, radiators in cars and do all sorts of stuff. He was a very, very talented man. But for me, the plastic things always I had a greater interest in. Well, I like to think if I do something to try and do it properly mm. or as best to the best of my abilities and... Lego I really enjoy um, because of the, the freedom I can get in creating yet, yet the, the limitations because most of it's square although there's a lot of round bits now it, it's really enjoyable to have this almost brick wall so as to speak um, that you can't pass you know I, I can't make that curve like that so how would I represent it how would I make someone look at this and go, oh, I know what that is. Mm. I know what you were doing there. I really, you know, that, those sort of things really um, inspire me. So in a way, your love of plastic twice, actually, with your Tupperware and with Lego has led you into community. Oh, I, yeah, that's the, that, that, the, definitely. And now I've got this 
group of people that I uh, would never have moved in the circles of, of which are all fan, adult fans of Lego and, and younger fans of Lego. And we all meet together and we do something. And we, um, we work with the local scouts group for fundraising and also uh, at the end of the year for the disadvantaged kids, we all buy a Lego set and put it into a box and it goes under the tree for the kids that don't have as much uh, at Christmas time. So we have a lot of, we try and give back to the community that's given to us. In my whole life, I've had Lego at some point or another, and it's always, you know, I've still got some bits from way back when. I've got stuff that's over 50 years old. Sometimes when I look back, I think, oh my goodness, uh, I've, I've, I've been doing this for that long. You know, found an old photograph um, that my sister had, she handed over to me, and it's uh, I've got this quite large four-motored aeroplane on the table made out of multicoloured pieces of Lego. It's a black and white photo. And it's this realisation that, you know, I probably was about six or seven when I built that. And we call those creations mocks, M-O-C, which is my own creation. And that's the thing that I connect the most with is I build the set as I got, as it came out of the box. And then it's what else can this be? So it's freedom. Yeah, freedom for de- to design. And uh, as I say, the constraints are really, you know, there's none. I, I would have said I had a fairly happy childhood, even though anyone who's lived in the constraints of a Christian cult will know that it's there's all sorts of limitations. And having to leave, walk away from that, to leave it, and to lose everybody that I knew at that time was really difficult. So it does draw me back to a happier time in my life, a time when things seemed... There were a lot less worries, and you know, more worried, more concerned about how I'll make these bricks work than, you know, all, all the other stuff that happens when you grow up. <laughs> well, just to conclude, then, I mean, you're clearly a person who loves other people. You love your life. You respect other beings. You don't eat them or, or kill them. You build a lot of stuff. You recycle. And I've asked most people on Auspicious Plastic this question, and it really logically leads me to ask especially with you um do you think it is possible to love an object definitely and i think that you know on a sort of semi-spiritual level human entities everything we touch and everything that we handle we impart some of our energy into and that's why i have things that you know a couple of remnants that were from my grandfather that I hold dear because I know he handled them he used them um, I, some of my father's tools I, I can it's like feel the energy that we put in this is why I think some things have hatred and bad things put into them it's like they absorb that energy because we can't measure it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist I know that we can't measure these things but I think there is a possibility in the future one day we will be able to measure the human energy that gets put into things, objects, by people who handle and touch them. And so, yeah, I, I'd say there is a strong chance that these things contain our love our, 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 and our, our hopes, our dreams, all those things as we handle them and as we pass them on mm. and other people can potentially feel them or enjoy them more because they can feel the love that went into it. And I've seen that in the faces people as they look at things that I've built out of Lego or out of the Dalek you know the 
and other things I've done where people have said, you know, they can see, you can see it and you can feel it, and then people want to touch it. They want to touch it. They want to put their hands in the fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> well, all that's left for me to say to you is, Darren, thank you so much for showing me some of the things that you love today and for speaking so beautifully about them. Thank you. No worries. Thank you very much. I feel very honoured. That's it for another episode of Auspicious Plastic. Huge thanks to my guest or guests for their time and willingness to share their ideas and stories about the things that they love. And massive thanks also to gifted music composer and musician Jeremy Conlon, aka Cooper Black, for creating the auspicious music theme for this podcast. You can find the full complement of his music online at cooperblack.bandcamp.com. And if you'd like to share your story with me or get in touch, please email me at hello at themeganspencer.com or you can visit my website, themeganspencer.com. And thank you too, auspicious listener. I'm grateful for your time, attention and feedback. My name's Megan Spencer and you've been listening to Auspicious Plastic. It's a podcast made about precious objects, made with love and dedicated to my mother Margaret. Until next time.